Here we are, the people of God's Word, opening God's Word together. We open them together to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, wherein we are discovering the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, who is of the order of Melchizedek. Begin reading again in verse 4. Now consider. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives." Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For it was he who was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Well, let's pray this morning. Lord God, hear our voices in prayer, we pray. Condescend to listen to us, Lord, and Grant us our petition, and we would appeal to you by way of petition to help us understand, to give us the wisdom that you say in the book of James, if we ask, you will give liberally. But even more so, Lord, as the writer of Proverbs has told us, not only get wisdom, but get understanding. And so, Lord, we pray, give us wisdom and help us to get understanding not for a glory unto ourselves, Lord, but that we might understand your glories and gain the hope that is the anchor for our souls by gaining them and might proclaim that hope to a lost and dying world. Grant us the knowing of our Savior and our great high priest, Jesus Christ of the order of Melchizedek, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Along with the Hebrews to whom this letter was written, we as well are learning to elevate Jesus Christ to the status he deserves. And one of the positions that has to be marked along the way and understanding who Jesus is, is that he is the great high priest. For hundreds of years, God had been training his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, to look to a high priest as a representative for them in coming before the glorious and overwhelming and mighty presence of God. So they would think rightly about that approach that they needed 
an intermediary. They needed a ministering servant of the Lord to bear their guilt before the Lord. To minister the sacrifices appropriate for that guilt of sin, even blood guilt, such was the ministry of the high priest. Prefiguring the high priest who would come, who is greater, better, superior to all other high priests, even from Aaron on. And so we have been studying in the first place that this Melchizedek was a superior high priest because he was a type of Christ in the Old Testament. And then we've also looked to see that he was superior even to the Aaronic priesthood. And he was such because he was superior even to Father Abraham. Even to Father Abraham, who, as we studied last week, paid a tithe to Melchizedek, the high priest of God Most High, the king of Salem, in Genesis chapter 14, that is recorded. And in breaking with this tradition, we now are introduced to what the tradition of the Mosaic Covenant had constantly pointed to a superior high priest, to a greater one. He whose representation was beyond even the genealogy of men because he was indeed beyond men. No genealogy was given in the Old Testament of Melchizedek, not that that man had none, but because that genealogy was not important to the type that he was representing. He was representing one who would come, and those qualifications were spiritual, not physical or genetic. He was in that position not because he was of the family of Levi, but because he was Melchizedek, priest of God Most High. And Jesus is of that order, the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 7 and verse 9, we read, Even Levi, who receives tithes by law, by commandment, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, not by law, not by commandment, by the voluntary expression from Abraham the lesser to Melchizedek the greater that he was worthy to receive a tenth of all the spoils from his conquests over the kings of the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah when he released and got the release by military victory over those who had captured his nephew Lot. He voluntarily gave, and so by doing so, we learn of the seminal relationship, as we discussed last week, and I have not the time to enter into that theological discussion again. I would simply point you uh, to our online resources from last week. Verse 10, For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What is it that Genesis said? 
chapter 14, verse 18 of Genesis. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was, listen, the priest of God Most High, and blessed him, that is Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And the text tells us, and he, Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. One portion of scripture that is often missed here, and I don't want to miss it, is what Melchizedek did. So if there's just a few verses on Melchizedek in the Old Testament, and there's just a couple references to Melchizedek in the Psalms, and Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and also Melchizedek is greater even than Father Abraham, and the high priestly ministry of Melchizedek is higher than all before, we need to pay attention to the details of Genesis and not miss how they connect to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Then, verse 18, Genesis chapter 14, then Melchizedek, a king, king of Salem, that means king of peace, brought out bread and wine. It's in the text. The Bible student must say these words to himself. Why? What for? The tithe is mentioned very clearly. We've studied the tithe. But what came first was this. He brought out bread and wine. Is it just because they were hungry and thirsty? That is and could be a very plausible and probable answer. Is that it? If the reason Melchizedek is mentioned in the Old Testament is symbolic and typological, maybe we should zero in a little bit more and say, what might be here that we should note? What are these things? What is bread? Well, Pastor, I'm sorry you have to ask that question. But most of us already know. But I mean, what is bread with regard to life? What is bread with regard to life when we read the Bibles that God has given us? Where, where do we find bread in the Old Testament? In symbology. In reference to God and his worship. In the temple, there was something that you who like the old King James Version will know very well. There was something called the shoe bread. And that used to perplex me as a child. Who would want bread baked in a shoe? Why would God want shoe bread in his temple? Well, thankfully, God doesn't leave us with 
just one translation. He helps us along the way, and we find out that it was actually better translated as showbread in the temple. Offered to God, it was holy, it was sanctified, it was symbolic. David, when he's fleeing from Saul for his life, actually did what no one would have ever done who wasn't a priest. For the priest gave him the showbread so that he could eat. There's something in that, even those things sanctified unto God and under the law prohibited for someone like that to eat, God in his mercy would have us learn that it is for man. That there is some kind of sustenance giving that is higher than even the spiritual. Would God have David starve that he not break the law? Even when the disciples are walking along the way with their, with their master Jesus and they're going by the ripe field and they're taking some of the heads of the grain off of the, off of the ripe stalks and they're rubbing them in their hands to de-hole them and then putting them in their mouths because they are hungry. A normal thing. And then those legalists come along, those Pharisees, and say, look, they're working on the Sabbath. Look, they're doing what they ought not. And Jesus looks at them and says, are you missing it? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What he did not mean is he doesn't desire sacrifice. He means that in the face of sacrifice, that is nothing if there isn't mercy from those who need sacrifices to cover their sin. Thou hard-hearted sinners, you. Life, bread. Jesus is born in this place called Beit Lechem. Beit House. Lechem. Bread. house of bread. Bethlehem. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, man cannot live on bread, what? Alone. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he did acknowledge that man needs bread to what? To live. But man also needs a spiritual sustenance from God, the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus even would say, you cannot follow me, you cannot even know me, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, to which... The Pharisees, like you're all doing now, saying, you can't say that in church. He meant it symbolically that to have life, you have to accept all of Jesus, physical and spiritual. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. King of Salem, priest of God Most High, 
on Abraham's return from the victory comes out to Abraham. That's an amazing thing for a king. Kings expect people to come in to them. The whole point we're making here in Hebrews is that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. So the greater is coming out to the lesser and he's bringing him bread and wine. Bread. Life. You have to eat. And bread is the symbol of life. Of God's physical provision. And so from the greater comes the giving of bread to Abraham. Symbolizing the everyday provision of God. And it's coming from a greater to a lesser. From a king to he who had the promises of God. And then the wine. We happen to be saddled with some poor teaching and tradition in the United States of America. We in the United States of America, across a number of denominations, ours included, stumble with God even using this word in the Bible. Wine. Much less... The thought of men drinking it. I am not here to totally address that now, but let me just say, that's bad doctrine. It's not in your Bibles. The overuse of alcohol and wine is in your Bibles. That's not what's happening in Genesis 14. Why is it there? Why this symbol? What is it with wine? A fermented drink, yes, that has alcohol in it. What, what, is, what is it about? You know, when you compare bread and wine, what, what kind of normal categories would you put them into? Okay, you know, go to the bread drawer and get some bread. Okay. Go to the wine cellar and get some Select a vintage of wine. It's different. One is normal, regular, everyday sustenance. The other is blessed, high, special. God promised even his people that they would all have in the promised land their own vine, their own fig tree. Wealth beyond the grain of the fields. Grapes made into wine. It's only in the United States because of the craziness of legalistic, subjective foisting upon the text of Scripture, a complete negativity to wine 
that we have lost the ability to entertain it in the text. We have to be careful of that. Note, I am not talking about alcoholism and those who have a problem with alcohol. Sin is sin. Anything God makes that's good, you can abuse. Not just wine. You can eat too much bread and get fat, which is also a sin. Let's keep perspective. The question is, why this? Is there something that's part of wine that we're missing because we're Americans? Bread, we're fine. That was real cool, Pastor. Bethlehem stuff, cool, yeah. But you said wine in church. And yes, it was alcoholic. Please, please don't send me something from someone who thinks wine wasn't fermented and, and have alcohol present in it. it. It simply is the definition of the word. Because you can't even crush a grape without the yeast on the surface of the grape beginning the fermentation process. Only since the recent development of pasteurization have we been able to kill everything good in grape juice. And I say that because it was Paul who said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. And it was under the law of Moses that a Nazarite could take a vow of greater service to God and thereby grow his hair long. Did men in the Old Testament have long hair? No, unless they'd taken a Nazarite vow. And the reason they grew their hair long is because that's the opposite of what other men normally did. So then in the New Testament we could read, even in Corinthians, doesn't even nature show you that a man for a man to have long hair is not natural? But a woman's hair is her glory. So says the word of God. Boy, I'm stepping on a lot of things. I hope I can come back next week. <laughs> so it is this God, it is these things we learn, that there's a goodness to wine, but there's also a danger to wine. That you can look too long into the cup, so says Proverbs and basically fall into it and be controlled by it. You can look at Ephesians. It says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But you have to balance that with the rest of Scripture where it says, even in the Psalms, that it is God who made wine that makes men's hearts merry. Now, I'm not real smart, but I kind of figured that part out on my own, what merry meant. And I didn't write it. So I'm not giving license for excess with wine at all. I'm saying you have to have this in its perspective where God wants it. And then you can start seeing how we're going to use it here in this text. Why bread? Why wine? Wine is special provision. Bread is everyday provision. You have to have it every day. When the Vintage runs out from a poor year, 
you don't need it to stay alive. You still need bread. But if you're blessed and the vintage runs through the whole year, goody for us. We still have wine. The generous blessing of God is to be seen from having your own vine as well as your own fig tree. But he didn't use figs, he used wine. Pastor, you might be belaboring the point. True. However, great high priest, prefigured by Melchizedek, a coming high priest, greater than Melchizedek, greater than Abraham, greater than all of the offerings given by every Levite, part of which were bread and wine in the temple for a poor offering. Go to Matthew. Go to Matthew, near the end of the life of Jesus, chapter 26. Chapter 26 of Matthew, Jesus has triumphantly entered. There is time now for him to bring his disciples together before his death on the cross. He wants to do this, we learn very desperately in the book of Luke, to have this meal with them to celebrate the Passover, the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that is symbolic of God's deliverance from the angel of death in the land of Egypt to be kept annually to remember the blood of that covenant promise that was to be put over the door and on the sides so the angel of death would pass by. Something had to die for the firstborn of Israel to live. Blood and a meal. Verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and what? Gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine. Jesus brought out bread. And that's it. Edna's shaken me off. Edna said, no, he didn't stop at bread. No. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. Now, many have tried to make an argument that what was in the cup wasn't wine. Sorry. That's what was at every Passover. That's Jewish that's part of it. Any machinations around it 
are really kind of weak and sad. Why? It's symbolic. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them from the hands of a high priest to Abraham come bread and wine. From the hands of the antitypical high priest of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ, come to his people bread and wine. A furtherance of a historical, traditional, and commanded festival, the Passover, now fulfilled in Christ. Symbolically, he gives them bread and says, this is my body. What keeps me alive while I'm here in the flesh is bread, and my body is bread. I am the bread of life. He would also say, I am the manna that comes down out of heaven. And what did that manna do? Fed Israel every single day and gave them physical life. I'm the bread of life. This is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many the remission of sins. These kinds of symbols are glorious. And to be held that way, I don't want you to miss them. My higher view is that you get the right view here of how God is using wine, not that you would think I'm either giving or denying permission to drink wine. If that's where you are, I'm doing a bad job. You're missing it. What is important here is how God is using these symbols with Christ Jesus our Lord, and then, I actually wish it was a communion Sunday, having commanded us to do it as well. For with this, there is the symbology of covenant. Drink from it, all of you. Who left the room before this happened? Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. What you must do, he said to him, do quickly. And he left. And he did not take the new covenant cup with the other 11 disciples. That is his blood. So there is a covenant making in our Old Testament chapter 14 of Genesis between a great king and a great man but the king and high priest is of greater position than Abraham and he brings out to him like the graciousness of the king of righteousness which he is the king of peace and he makes peace with Abraham giving him bread, the symbol of life daily and physically, and covenant symbol, we drink together and seal the bond.
greater to lesser. Greater to lesser. Jesus Christ goes into his disciples who would one day be the apostles who would write scripture. The greater to the lesser in the midst of all the symbolism of Passover and he institutes the Lord's table and his two choice symbols are bread and wine because they're historical. And the wine cuts both ways. Interesting, bread's almost always favorable in the scripture. But even the few texts I, I quoted to you, wine is seen as both a blessing and in too great of amount, a cursing. A dangerous thing. So is the Lord's table. It is covenant binding. It's only for believers. Let me read on here and show you how dangerous this cup can be and why only wine fills this capacity. Listen, we go on in Matthew chapter 26. Verse 28, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. First Corinthians. Chapter 11. The church is a dangerous place. Why do I say that? Because God is a dangerous God. The Old Testament, one man, once a year, could enter the presence behind the veil. And even he was in danger of death for entering unworthily. So God wants us there, right? Pastor Fred? Yes. But it's scary to go before God? Yes. God is both a comforter and the just God of wrath. Churches are filled with people. Have you noticed? There's many that say, you know, the great thing about church is you get to go to church and worship God. You know, people say, well, what don't you like about church? Well, some would say, it's all the people who go there. Church would be great if it wasn't full of so many sinners to which we have to give a hearty what? Amen. Wouldn't it be great if in reality, not just pretend when we actually walk into church, all our sinful inclinations fly out the door before we walk in? Wouldn't it be cool like once a week for like an hour and a half? I'm good, baby. 
clean. No stray thoughts. You know, no errant mindset. No looking at one another in judgment. No trying to separate. No trying to fake our way through. We'd just be straight up sanctified in God. Woohoo! I mean, an hour and a half, that'd be pretty cool. What about forever? But see, the fact is, we're not that way. And it's a dangerous thing to worship God unworthily, even in our present age. Because we make covenant bond with him. And that's one of the reasons why periodically when we're taking the Lord's table, I remind people that we have open communion here, but that I encourage it for only to be taken and observed by those who are actually true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I do that is for their protection from the wrath of God. And periodically, I will read from chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians so that even believers will not take the Lord's table in an unworthy, sinful manner. And the reason I do that is to protect them from the wrath of God. Not unto losing their salvation, but unto losing their life. This is one of the reasons why wine is the symbol that can carry the covenant bond. Because it is both a blessing and it's dangerous. It's a good thing Judas didn't drink from that cup. He was unworthy. Chapter 11, Corinthians, verse 17. Paul says, now in giving these instructions, pay attention here, I do not praise you. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. And they are. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Say it ain't so, Paul. Not in Corinth. And those of us who've walked with the Lord in enough churches over time, we know that there's divisions among us. In case you haven't noticed. And the beauty of what I've seen in this church is, is a harmony that's being built. But it's tenuous. It's easily lost. But a care for one another goes beyond and keeps yourselves together without division. But Paul even tells us why there must be factions among us. Listen to this. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you. Why? Even this troublesome stuff. Listen, that purpose clause. That those who are approved may be recognized among you. So you can see who's following the Lord and who isn't. And that is proved by division. We could call them in a simple term, interpersonal fights. It's ugly. But it's the truth. Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. See, there's where you have, if you want to know what they're drinking, somebody's drunk on it. That's an abuse that's being addressed. 
and somebody else who needs some wine, they won't share. That's, can you see the bigger issue than whether there's alcohol there or not? Please, we must mature to see this. And then he goes on. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? No one wants to be poor, and nor does anyone want to be, have that pointed out because they don't have enough. And that's why our potlucks, our fellowship should be, everyone's invited. And if you don't have something that day, swallow your pride and come. For that's what other people have money for and extra food is in the church. It's to share with you. As they walked along the way, they took the heads off of the crop. They crushed them in their hands and they ate them. And Jesus said, that's good. It's merciful that they get something to eat. And that's the bigger issue. Now, he says, shall I say this to your praise? I do not praise you. Now, here's where we pay attention to how this works. The danger and the blessing of a cup of covenant, of this process of covenant giving of bread and wine in the new covenant church. Verse 23, this is what I quote almost every time we take the Lord's table. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, Take eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. So his body given is to be remembered. It is a rite. It is a symbol. It is a tradition. It is a formality that we carry out because it is weighted with biblical history and covenant promise. His body is given. So his physical death, his body totally sacrificed. What kept him alive? Now given. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often, now, here's where we know we can do it as often as we want or not as often, but we pick it as often as you eat and drink this bread and drink this cup, those symbols, this bread and this cup, that were part at one time of the Passover ceremony, have now been ushered into the New Covenant, New Testament church as part of what we do as an observance, as an ordinance. It's a command that we do it. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Melchizedek gave bread and wine and blessed he who had the promises. Jesus is giving to his people of the church bread and wine, and they are the people of the promises. And the promise we're looking for is what? We proclaim the Lord's death, 
but he rose again until he comes. Our promise is he's coming. We are keeping covenant with that promise. Marking the need for a sacrifice. So how horrible it is in church if we don't get along while we're actually observing what brought us together in peace. The king of Salem. Peace with God. So if God has given us peace with God through his son, why don't we keep peace with one another at the Lord's table? Because if you don't, if you don't accept the blessing of harmony through that, you get the other side of the cup. What was it that Jesus prayed in the garden? What did he ask God about concerning what he, he was doing and where he's going? He said, if, if it's possible. And then he said the word something about a cup. If this cup could pass, if I don't have to drink this cup, may it be, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. How dangerous that cup. How frightening that cup. That he would bleed drops of blood and pray fervently before his God. And even in our book of Hebrews, when he, with vehement cries before his Lord. Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The cup of the wrath of God. Only wine can carry the wrath. Because it cuts two ways. Blessing and overuse death. And such it is in chapter 11. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord, listen, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now pay attention, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Not understanding, being immature. Remember what he said to the Hebrews? By now you should be teachers. But if we remain locked under a system of teaching that has denied us, being able to read a word in Scripture in its literal fashion, we've lost something that needs to be restored. May I mark it? I didn't plan on going this long on this today, and I pray I didn't do something wrong. But something right. I know this is hard. For some of you, terribly difficult. Many of us have been raised on the traditions that any kind of alcohol is wrong. And we've carried that into the church. And we've judged each other by it when it's not biblical. Drunkenness can be judged as wrong. Drinking wine at the Lord's table may not be seen as wrong. It may be possible that the opposite is true.
now. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now here's the consequences. For this reason many are weak and sick among you. There are direct health problems that God places as judgment on his own people for taking a covenant that is so rich in meaning, so overflowing with glorious beauty and promise, and trampling it underfoot as though it doesn't matter what condition they are in spiritually when they observe it. In this country, we've lost tradition too much. God left us just two Lord's table and baptism, and we can't even get those right. What's wrong with us? I think there's reformation could be done here. And so here we see that some are sick and some are weak. And listen to this, and many sleep, which is a term for being dead. The bread of life. The covenant promise of life through the bread of Christ, when taken in an unworthy way, elicits even for a believer physical death. It's that dangerous. It's that sanctified. It's that spiritual that you can die and not lose your salvation as a Christian. It doesn't say that but you can be of no further use to the Lord in this physical life and you have trampled him under foot by taking lightly this and having been taught so lightly about this. I have heard out of a Bible school that was in Oregon this teaching on the Lord's table, it doesn't matter what you use, you could use a potato chip and a can of Coke and it would be the Lord's table. To which I say, no! I did not write this word. God did. And how could we be training preachers that flippantly? You can die from this. Listen to this. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. I knew I should have turned my fan on this morning. It's getting hot in here. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. Did you hear that? Here's hope at the end of this. When we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord. We feel his good leather strap bringing us back in. Well, driving us out of the temple where somebody had made merchandise of his home. And make it again a sanctified house of prayer of keeping the ordinances according to his commands for they are full of life but they are laden with death when done improperly. We're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if someone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment and the rest I will set in order when I come. A man of what? What was that meeting like? Oh, here he comes. The letter was bad enough. 
So I got stuck this morning and didn't make it much farther. I've studied this issue in great detail. And I guess since I found myself with Melchizedek getting bread and wine, I couldn't leave it alone. I think it's big symbology. I think that it's traced directly to Jesus Christ and his bread and wine can't be missed as part of a high priestly ministry that brings us to the Lord. So let me close this morning. Kids, you don't have much, you're precious little to write in your notes. I'll think of something. Something to ask. Let me remind you of this high priest. Let me, let me just do two texts. I was just going to do one. I've just, I've just expanded. I can do that, right? Chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What confession is that? We have a high priest who's passed through the heavens. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We confess his humanity. This is my body, which is given for you. Verse 16, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Turn. Verse 18, chapter 6. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Mark this. This is maturity. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That's a high priest ministry. That's a sacrificial ministry. He may not come behind the veil of heaven as he's passed through the heavens into the real temple that God made for his own worship without sacrifice. A covering. He entered the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of, you tell me, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. But Christ is greater than Melchizedek in his high priestly role, don't take it lightly. It's your anchor for the soul. 
He went so I can go with him. I can't go before God alone. That's the message of hundreds of years of Mosaic history. Don't come near me, lest I break out against you and you die. The message of the New Testament Lord's table, don't come near me with an unrighteous, unprepared heart to my table, lest I break out against you. Come with Lord Jesus. And you only can come with a high priest humbly. Because you know you can't make it alone. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every day I need thee. Enter behind the veil for me. Let's pray. Blessed Savior, O High Priest of God Most High, Jesus of the Order of Melchizedek, we honor Thee for Your ministry unto us. We bow, we shake and tremble for our unworthiness, but we dance and rejoice that you have raised us to our feet by covering us with the blood of your covenant that we might have peace with God through your high priestly sacrificial ministry. Blessed be the name of the Lord.